Welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Tuesday, 6th of August, 2019. I'm your host, as always, Jacko Zwetslin, and today I am joined by Dr. Go Myung-hyun of the Asan Institute of Policy Studies to talk about North Korea's economy and the effect that sanctions are having on it. I will uh, give you his bio, which I stole from the website of the Asan Institute, which you can find at asaninst.org. That's asaninst.org. Dr. Go Myung-hyun is a research fellow at the Asan Institute for Policy Studies. Previously, he was a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles Neuropsychiatry Institute. His research applies quantitative perspectives to traditional and non-traditional security issues. Dr. Go is widely cited as the by the international media on North Korea, with special focus on the economy, sanctions, and the regime's long-term strategy. Dr. Go is a Munich young leader of Munich Security Conference in 2015 and received his PhD in policy analysis from the Pardi Rand Graduate School. Welcome, Dr. Gore. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you intro. for joining me today. How did you move from neuropsychiatry research to policy analysis and North Korea watching? Well, you know, that's actually interesting, you know, behind the scenes story. Mm. I, mean, I mean, you know, when I first joined ASAN, I joined ASAN with the understanding that I'll be focusing mostly on the soft side of North Korea, such uh-huh. as the population, uh, you know, the economy, how information spreads in North Korea and so forth. But this being a think tank and this being Korea, uh, the most of the attention paid to North Korean issues is focused on the, you know, hardcore security stuff. Right? Mm. And then also North Korea didn't really help in this regard because North Korea kept uh, carrying out provocations by launching missiles or carrying out nuclear tests. So, you know, and then, you know, think tank, uh, we have to follow the media cycle. And, uh, you know, like uh, when it comes to North Korean economy, nothing really changes much uh, in the span of a couple of months. So, you know, in order to, you know, be, I mean, have the more, you know, attention paid to my work to make more comments on those on North Korea security issues than the this soft uh, stuff that I'm very much interested in. And yeah, so that's why I start moving from uh, North Korean economy and population to security issues, even though uh, I still work a lot on the North Korean economy issues, especially uh, from the perspective of the sanctions, how the sanctions are working out uh, right now and then what kind of impacts they are having on the North Korean economy. Well, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to uh, buck the media cycle, so Uh to speak, and uh, get back into the soft issues, although we may, if time permits, uh, talk a little bit at the end about North Korea's recent uh, (laughs) missile launches, because that's also, you know, we at NK News are part of that media cycle, so we can't completely ignore (laughs) it. Okay, so speaking of NK News, on April the 4th this year, NK News published an opinion piece by you uh, titled Why an All or Nothing Pitch to North Korea is a Diplomatic Dead End and subtitled If Talks Are to Succeed, the US Must Accept That Only a Step-by-Step Approach Will Work. Mm. So that was um, April 4th, so after the Hanoi failure but before the Panmunjom mini-summit. Mm-hmm. So first of all, what was the basis for your argument? Can you give us a quick summary? Oh, well, I mean, this is um, going back to diplomacy on one-on-one, I would say. I mean, uh, if the United States is willing and then wants to negotiate with North Korea to somehow uh, force North Korea to give up nuclear weapons, then you have to be more serious about dialogue. Uh, that's the, you know underlying basic, basic logic behind my argument. I mean, sure, if the United States wants to somehow, uh, you know, use the military option against North Korea to get rid of the North Korea's nuclear program for good, then you should be also more serious about that. But 
right now, it looks like the United States, at least, uh, at least President Trump, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be divided about this. I mean, it doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to have a clear focus on North Korea, even though he says that you know, Chairman Kim is a good friend of his and, you know, somehow he likes the, the status quo and then he somehow uses the, uh, the status quo in the Korean Peninsula as a, some sort of an achievement mm-hmm. under, you know, uh, on, you know, because of his uh, foreign policy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, but then status quo in the Korean Peninsula is not stable. That's the problem. And I think that the actor that's most, uh, unhappy about the status quo happens to be North Korea. Mm. That's why North Korea is, uh, uh, launching missiles and so forth. So, uh, what, uh, what I wrote there was that if the United States wants to be serious about reaching some sort of a diplomatic outcome to this uh, crisis, quote unquote, then United States should be you know, take the, you know, the logical steps towards diplomatic negotiation, which is going to be a step-by-step process because you need to somehow uh, handicap North Korea's uh, nuclear problem at the present stage. But what, what's wrong with uh, using diplomatic processes and dialogue to try to reach a big deal? That's, uh, that's a good question. I mean, but the thing is that the so-called big deal, if you look at the design of the big deal, I mean... Uh, it actually shows that the United States is not to, I mean, again, that's the center, uh, the focus of my argument again. Uh, the United States doesn't seem to be serious about diplomatic negotiation because if you're asking the other side to give up everything that you have, uh, that you have spent so much time and energy on in the last, uh, two decades at least. And then, you know, the United States in exchange for that is offering, uh, a possibility of lifting sanctions. I mean, that's not a way to conduct a, a serious, meaningful negotiations. I'm actually all in favor of applying pressure on North Korea. I think a pressure is very essential in making sure that North Korea abides by any types of agreement it might, uh, you know, sign on. Uh, but then on the other hand, if you want to be serious about negotiation, you have to have a very like a logical and, uh, uh, you know, meaningful and credible, uh, negotiation design here. So the, you know, the big deal compared to what the North Koreans are putting on the table, you know, it's not really a negotiation step. It's actually a terms of surrender. So that's my, that's my biggest beef with the current approach. So you're arguing for, uh, a, a phased approach, step by step, measure for measure. Yeah, I'll be the you know the underlying blueprint of a, a ideal uh, negotiation process with North Korea. I mean, I take a page off uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that the Obama administration signed with Iran. And uh, the characteristics of that plan was that it had like an international coordination uh, working uh, together to pressure Iran to sign on to this agreement. And second, uh, it had feasible objectives that, uh, you know, both sides of the negotiation could agree on. And it was actually, you know, in a, in a way, it wasn't an ambitious plan because it only targeted a limited uh, aspect of Iran's uh, WMD program, but it's something that, you know, Iran was wanted to abide by. Mm. So that's, uh, yeah. And then it also involved a step-by-step process in which there's a clear uh, trade-off between, uh, you know, I mean, in the, in the sense that, you know, like a civilization is made by Iran, but at the same time, uh, the international community will offer Iran uh, rewards for uh, abiding by the agreement, such as lifting the sanctions. So these, all, the, all these steps were clearly outlined in the, you know, in the written uh, on the negotiation uh, roadmap. So that's something that I think we should apply on North Korea too. Obviously, I mean, uh, the JCPOA wasn't a, you know, totally perfect, uh, negotiation roadmap by, um, by any means. And it's not looking very healthy now. And it's because the United States, uh, you know, has decided that the, you know, agreement with Iran was, uh, 
now basically uh too small of a scale mm. and didn't address uh, many other aspects of Iran's transgressions in the region. So that's something that we can take into account in designing uh, a feasible roadmap for negotiation with North Korea by focusing on the North Korea's you know, other WND activities such as chemical and biological weapons and more importantly, uh, North Korea's cyber capability. Mm. Four months on, uh, would you, if you were writing an opinion piece for NK News today, would you write the same as you did uh, on April the 4th with no major changes? Absolutely, yeah. I wouldn't really retract any word of what I've written there. And then actually, I wouldn't say that I was actually pretty right mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I wrote that in four months ago because what we are seeing now is uh, the continuation of the you know, this uh, stasis, I would say, in the negotiations between Pyongyang and Washington. We are not seeing uh, any major meaningful change. And also, even, I mean, from the South Korean perspective, South Korea's role here is that it has decreased, declined uh, uh, tremendously. I mean, now we don't even figure in the, uh, in, I mean, even even figure in the serious uh, negotiation approach by Pyongyang. So I think uh, this is a serious matter. Did the mini summit at Panmunjom uh, just over a month ago, give you any more or less hope? Oh well, I mean, I mean, I had clearly understand the intention behind uh, this mini summit in Panmunjom, this three-way meeting uh, between uh, you know, Trump and Kim and then our president Moon. Uh, but it was clearly uh, intended by President Trump to somehow uh, gain time, I would say, or somehow make sure that uh, the status quo holds in the Korean Peninsula. We have to remember that uh, North Korea has been sending a very consistent message towards Washington before this mini-summit in Panmunjom. Mm-hmm. North Korea wanted to restart the provocation because he wasn't very happy about, uh, you know, ongoing, uh, you know, talks about rest- resuming the, uh, you know, working level meetings. President Trump was somehow was seen by North Koreans as a, as a last hope, so to, uh, so to mm-hmm. speak, uh, that would allow North Koreans to bypass this talents of uh, headline advisors that apparently surround uh, Trump right now. So that's why I think they gave another hope, I mean, another shot at uh, this, you know, so-called personal diplomacy mm. between the two leaders. And that's why I think Kim Jong-un decided to make that outing to Panmunjom in exchange for actually nothing. Well, exactly. Yeah. So this was a major gamble on the part of uh, Chairman Kim, I would say. And... And then uh, probably the North Koreans are hoping that uh, Trump would go back to Washington and convince his uh, hardline advisors to, to relax a little bit and, you know, and, uh, engage in small uh, steps of our uh, negotiations first. Uh, and then, you know, somehow uh, push them, uh, you know, negotiations forward. But then, you know, one month uh, later, we are seeing that uh, things haven't really changed in IOTA. So I'm actually afraid that the, the recent provocations by North Korea, even though in terms of, uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, in terms of numbers, it's actually increasing, but in terms of impact, it's small. I would say I think that they're going to uh, raise the, the impact of the world provocations from now on, and it's going to be more serious. In your view, what's Kim Jong-un's short-term priority? Is it secur- security guarantees or economic growth? They want security guarantees, but not the security guarantees by the outsiders. Clearly, they don't trust the outsiders enough to uh, somehow give up their nuclear deterrence, which is the ultimate uh, security guarantee by any country for a piece of paper. So mm-hmm. clearly what they are aiming at is, uh, is for the United States to give North Korea 
even a tacit uh, acknowledgement of North Korea's nuclear capability. I mean, right now, I think North Korea is aspiring to be accepted to the club of a nuclear powers. I, I, I understand uh, that uh, North Koreans are very realistic about this scenario. So I think uh, just uh, engaging in some sort of uh, arms control talk with Washington in exchange for lifting some of the most uh, major sanctions item, I think that was a feast for North Korea to, you know, to achieve, I mean, to consider that, that they have achieved a short-term uh, goal in this regard. Mm. How high on the list of priorities for Kim Jong-un is uh, sanctions relief? That's pretty high up, I would say. I mean, so uh, I think North Koreans are taking quite a chance right now with their economy by holding on to this hardline uh, approach towards negotiations. I mean, they want to somehow, uh, through, the, through their you know, very rigid legal system position, to force the United States to blink first, meaning uh, to lift the sanctions first. And I think even though they are doing that, they are pretending that sanctions having, are not having a major impact on the economy. I think they are having a major impact on the economy because uh, the mechanisms of the North Korean economy shows that uh, you know sanctions are biting into their welfare. Now, on the uh, 1st of August, so just a few days ago, Chad O'Carroll here at NK News published an article titled No Can Do, How Tinned Coffee Exposes the Myth of Targeted North Korea Sanctions, subtitled North Korean's Thirst for Coffee Shows the Increasingly Blunt Nature of DPRK Sanctions Regime. And it was about the, uh, the Japanese canned coffee mm-hmm. drink, Poka. Mm. which was once sold in uh, great quantities of North Korea, mm. but is now banned under United Nations Security Protocol Resolution 2397, mm. which includes sector-level sanctions that made it illegal mm. for North Koreans to import a wide range of commodities, mm. products and materials. In particular, the decision that, quote, all member states shall prohibit the direct or indirect supply of iron, steel, and other materials, unquote. Are consumer items like this intended to be blocked by sanctions? I mean, I think that if the Japanese government considers the coffee, coffee cans to be a luxury item, sure, it's actually up to the Japanese government to do so. Yeah, but they weren't being imported from Japan. They were being uh, produced and imported from Singapore, mm. and Singapore wasn't that concerned about it. I think they only uh, now recently stopped uh, the exports of it because of uh, sanctions pressure. Sure, yeah. I mean, they, you know, that's, uh, I mean, but then I think a more interesting reading out of it is why North Korean regimes keep spending money to procure this kind of luxury goods. Because we know that the major source of a North Korean income happened to be the export of, uh, you know, mineral items, you know, non-mineral oils as well, but the natural resources, obviously. And also the, you know, like the financial income earned through uh, the posting of the workers overseas. And these two major channels of, uh, you know, foreign currency income have been shut down by the United Nations uh, sanctions. And we don't, I mean, sure, like uh, there might be some questions about the effectiveness of it, but then we know that the, Compared to uh, the baseline a uh, couple of years ago where North Koreans were making billions of dollars out of exports of these kind of items, we know that uh, the income has uh, declined significantly. And and given this uh, background, it's surprising that North Koreans, instead of engaging in, say, like, you know, more saving measures, like, you know, spending less on this kind of I so-called quote-unquote luxury items. Are not, I mean, I wouldn't call them luxury items. I call them non-essential items for their living standards. But then the fact of the matter is that it's being, you know, the North Koreans are keep spending money on this, as Chad has pointed out. So I think the fundamental uh, question here is how we can we read this, I mean, this phenomena where North Koreans are engaging in essentially a widespread consumption uh, mm-hmm. of uh, like, items that are non-essential to the livelihood of the North Korean people. 
No, but but it's one thing to say that these are non-essential items and another mm. thing to say that these are items which are uh, supposed to be blocked under sanctions. Uh, you know, so, uh, let, so, let, so let me finish a little bit about okay. this reading. I mean, I'm fascinated by this because, uh, I mean, if you look at the you know, trade between China and North Korea in this regard, North Koreans have tried uh, really hard, I think, to keep up the level of imports of uh, quote-unquote non-essential items, such as, you know, this kind of uh, food items that are, you know, that are not like, uh, you know, concerned grain and stuff, and also the import of gasoline. Uh, and I think it shows that the North Korean regime is spending hard currency in order to keep up the living standards of its own people. And it, it says a lot about the intention of the North Korean regime and actually the constraints that the North Korean regime is facing right now. I would say that uh, the fact of the matter is that the North Korean regime is spending a lot of money to you know, maintain a certain level of living standard. And that's because the North Korean regime, for the first time in history, their history, in my view, that they're uh, paying attention to the political needs of its own regime. They start caring about its own people. Hmm. And that's, I think, a very surprising. Okay, leaving aside the, uh, the matter of uh, non-essential consumer items, what about the argument that sanctions hurt those who are most vulnerable in North Korea? Uh, we're talking about things like malaria treatment, tuberculosis medicine, food items, um, nail clippers, buckets with metal handles that are hard to move into North Korea because of sanctions and secondary sanctions. Yeah, clearly there's that uh, issue. I mean, sanctions, especially sanctions of type that concerns uh, in the economy, such as economic embargo measures, have always uh, hurt the you know, most vulnerable segment of the population. That's the truth. I mean, that there's no avoiding it. I mean, uh, so you're saying that's basically part of their nature. Yes, it's unfortunate, but that's the case. And we know that the major channels of uh, ingress of this, the items you just mentioned, happens to be China, and the Chinese custom have uh, were for a while, especially during 2017, were very hysterical about uh, controlling this kind of item that that clearly have humanitarian purposes. So that's been a, uh, a major challenge for, uh, I understand that it has been a major challenge for NGOs, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the in South Korea, but any, anywhere in the world to help the North Korean people with uh, humanitarian assistance. So, but my understanding is that the situation has improved uh, since last year. Uh, United Nations uh, Sanctions Committee has established uh, a very clear guideline uh, regarding humanitarian assistance. Now there's a reporting requirement by the NG- humanitarian NGOs if they want to assist North Korea. And then if they follow those steps, then it's much easier for them to get this UN blessing in order to convince any national authority to let uh, this assistance go through into North Korea. So I think the situation is improving, but then sure, like uh, sanctions are it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you always hurt the people, but then at the same time, uh, I think the North Korean regime, given the pronouncements uh, that the regime is are making these days regarding the need for the international community to lift the sanctions that are currently in place against them, shows that the sanctions are having an impact uh, on the regime too, okay, not just the vulnerable pop- uh, segment of the population. Okay, but I, I have a good counterexample to uh, your suggestion that things are getting better since 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, just two months ago in June, the Finnish aid group FIDA, hmm. FIDA, the Finnish Development Corporation Organization, had to uh, cease its activities in North Korea after two decades. And in their statement, they said, the reason for this exceptional situation is the tightening, this is in June 2019, hmm. the tightening of international sanctions imposed by the US over the last few months. Sanctions make financial services related to North Korean products impossible. We are disappointed that the tightening of sanctions has suddenly begun to prevent global humanitarian operations. I mean, I'm I'm very 
unfortunate to hear that uh, an NGO like that, like the, the fighter, uh, had to stop its operation in Pyongyang, uh, sorry, in North Korea. But then I think uh, there are many other NGOs are still operating in, uh, in North Korea. And we have to understand that uh, there's been many overtures made by South Korean government and South, South Korean NGOs to assist North Korea uh, with humanitarian uh, assistance. But then it was actually the North Korean government that turned down these kind of offers. We know that the most recently it was actually South Korean government that uh, made this offer of uh, 50,000 tons of rice mm-hmm. uh, to alleviate, alleviate uh, the food situation in North Korea. But we know that the U.S. North Korean regime that, uh, rejected that offer. I mean, I, I mean, personally, I know many South Korean engineers are trying to get into North Korea and reach out to the North Korean counterparts uh, to you know extend the humanitarian assistance that they, they've been planning for years, I would say. But then the North Korean regime has been unresponsive towards this kind of request. So, you know, I think we have to look at the both sides of the ledger. Well, yeah, I I think it's not difficult to find examples where the North Korean government is uh, prepared to sacrifice its own people to make a political point, as they are in this case, Mm. that we don't want to take aid from Mm. South Korea because that would legitimize the South Korean government. But to sort of go along with that and therefore say, well, then, uh, you know, the people of North Korea have to suffer and we're not going to make any other channels available into North Korea. That seems to be also making a political point too. Well, all the channels, I mean, there's still, the, uh, when it comes to humanitarian assistance, uh, all the channels of, uh, you know, assistance are still open, even the financial side. If you look at the languages of uh, uh, United Nations sanctions resolutions, also just the sanctions are, I would say, regime by the United States. For instance, the U.S. Treasury Department makes very explicit that you can still uh, assist NGOs and then uh, other international organizations that are engaged in humanitarian assistance in North Korea and the wiring fund into, uh, to them to North Korea is exempt from the financial sanctions measures currently in place yeah. by the Treasury Department. And yet many financial institutions, for fear of mm-hmm. possible falling... I mean, I'll give you a good example. Uh, in um, in December, our good friend of NK News, Michael Spavor, was mm-hmm. arrested in China. Right, in China. Right. Yeah. Uh, but his business was traveling in and out of North Korea. Right. And uh, some friends of, of his, myself included, full disclosure, uh, we set up a GoFundMe account mm-hmm. to raise money to try to help him mm-hmm. when he does eventually get out of prison in China. Now... Uh, within two weeks of setting up that GoFundMe page, it was shut down by GoFundMe. Mm. And when we asked them why, uh, we didn't get a direct statement, but after some prodding and some pushing and some questioning mm. and some questioning and some indirect contact to the CEO, basically it was made clear to us that there was a concern about uh, uh, money possibly going into North Korea because North Korea was mentioned on the page because that's what he does. That's his business. Right, so that they shut this down yeah. uh, because of the concern that uh, some money might be somehow funneled through to North Korea. But I think uh, you and I, I think we both agree that there's some measure of financial restrictions should be in place against North Korea because it's a flag on these uh, transgressions that took place in the past, right? Especially regarding uh, WMD development as well as uh, human rights violations. So some restrictions are required. But then uh, in the cases that you just mentioned, I think uh, only antidote for this kind of, uh, you know, like uh, overreaction mm-hmm. will be a totally free and open financial transaction with North Korea. So this is a problem, clearly. But then I think uh, this is a problem that can be solved not through uh, lifting the sanctions in place, 
but by educating, uh, you know, organizations like GoFund uh, to understand that uh, just mentioning North Korea doesn't violate the sanctions. In an April story for AP this year, you are uh, quoted as estimating North Korean foreign currency reserves as being around five billion U.S. dollars. Uh, on what numbers or what information did you base that uh, estimation? Well, that's a good question because I think I gave a range uh, in that interview. Ah, they only mentioned one number. I think they call it the upper bound of the my range. Okay, so what is the range? I would say like it's actually a huge range because we have a, we don't have a clear information uh-huh. about how much money North Korean uh, regime is making. So I, I think I gave a between one point five to five billion. And Between then, 1.5 and 5. Okay, that is quite a 5 is, uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm surprised. I mean, I, mean, I got quoted with that number. But mm. then, uh, but, you know, the way you, uh, you know, estimate this number, actually, it's not difficult. I mean, after which an estimation, estimation is based on your assumptions. And the, your assumption is based on the, you know, the, the official trade that took place between China and North Korea previously. And these are open uh, information through Chinese customs. And that's one. And then we also we can also estimate uh, the number of uh, you know North Korean overseas workers through which you can estimate how much money, how much capital income that mm-hmm. North Korean have been to, has been able to make through these workers. So you know add this up, and then you pretty much give, come up with a, a ballpark figure of uh, you know how much foreign currency income that North Korean must be making. So I would consider these two components to be essential in estimating North Korea's financial income. And I think uh, the listeners to this podcast can do their own calculations in this regard because uh, you know these are informations are uh, you know out in the open and then you can make your own calculations and I think it's a one way to compare notes and then come up with a better estimate using the collective wisdom of the internet. Collective wisdom of the internet. That's the first time that's been invoked here on this podcast. In that same article, uh, Frey you're quoted as saying, it is certain that North Korea is releasing a large amount of money. When its money runs out, it'll face an urgent situation and step up calls for sanctions relief. How's, how long do you give it? Well, I think it's already happening. I mean, you know, we, I mean, I, I think uh, I've been saying about the, uh, the possibility of North Korea facing a balance of payment crisis since late last year. Uh, it's been almost a year, and then mm-hmm. I think uh, it'll get worse uh, early next year. I mean, it's very clear. Uh, North Korea's uh, spending uh, habit hasn't changed, uh, as I mentioned uh, already. Uh, North Korea has been keeping up, which is spending, and then that's going to uh, make it faster uh, for North Korea to face the, you know, the balance of payment crisis that I've been expecting for a while. So yeah, I think uh, uh, next year we'll see even more uh, noise from coming uh, from North Korea, and we have to take into account why the Chairman Kim, you know, mentioned that uh, the they, you know he would give uh, United States a one-year deadline mm-hmm. before he changes his attitude towards North Korea. I think he's taking into account this uh, possibility. Does it seem likely to you that uh, running out of foreign currency or the threat of running out of foreign currency could cause Kim Jong Un to lash out violently in desperation? Yeah, they're already making preparations for that. I mean, I don't think uh, they are going. They are going to lash out violently, but they know in a way that precip- precipitates war in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the North Koreans' way of provocation is uh, very methodical. Uh, they start small uh, and then they escalate from there. You can somehow make the analogy with a doctor, uh, you know, using a different medicine, mm-hmm. uh, different dosage of medicine. I see. To see how what kind of impact that has, or kind of like a reaction that has on the patient. In this case, the patient will be the United States, who seems to be very uninterested in negotiating with Pyongyang. So, you know, they are, you know, like uh, raising up the dosage little by little. And then uh, they gave one year time frame. So, 
by the end of this year or the early next, uh, we might actually see a provocation that's a borderline crossing the red line established by Washington. Talking about a ballistic missile? Long-range ballistic missile. But then I think they're going to launch a missile that flies across Japan. Ah, like they did back in 98, 7? Oh, well, actually, 2017. Oh, I'm th- okay. We don't have to go that oh, far yeah, back. Oh, yeah, sure. I was thinking about the first one, yeah. the satellite launch. Exactly. And then, you know, they can launch a missile that, uh, I mean, a missile test that's the older, you know, technical specification of a long-range missile that's, uh, that shows that North Korea has the capability to reach the mainland United States. That's mm-hmm. sufficient for to constitute a major provocation. So that's a red line that uh, we, we everybody knows. And North Korea might get might inch very close to that, but without really crossing it. Uh, now, in February this year, in an LA Times piece, you said that uh, illegal smuggling operations like the suspected one in the East China Sea have allowed North Korea to import between half and two-thirds of the oil supply it was getting before the sanctions ramped up in 2017. Who now, in 2019, who is helping North Korea to smuggle things or get around sanctions? Are these state or non-state actors or a mixture of both? These are actually non-state actors, mostly. I think, uh, I mean... If you consider the Chinese and Russian government's uh, lack of uh, sanctions enforcement as an assistance, the formal assistance, yes, I will, could, you could say that the Russian and Chinese governments are also mm-hmm. assisting North Korea passively, though. Uh, but the only other, I think about the main actors here have, uh, are the you know private sector actors in Russia and China that are dealing with North Korea because I suspect transaction with North Korea under uh, current circumstances comes with a premium. And so essentially the margin, profit margin, and engaging this kind of illicit behavior is actually very high. So it's very remunerable for these uh, private sector actors to mm-hmm. help North Korea to evade sanctions. Now, in terms of governments, you said that both the Chinese and the Russian governments are uh, helping by, uh, what, uh, winking at uh, turning a blind eye, turning a blind yeah, eye yeah. to uh, to breaches of sanctions. Uh, how meaningful is that kind of passive assistance to North Korea's continued economic stability? Well, clearly, it's very, very important. I mean, if, if the world of Chinese been uh, very, if, for instance, the Chinese, because uh, you know we know that the China is the most important, most important and biggest source of uh, this kind of commodities for North Korea. So, where the Chinese government been. Uh, much more uh, active in enforcing the sanctions, then, yeah, I think North Koreans will face a major crisis right now. But it's not happening because the North Chinese are uh, somehow modulating their level of enforcement in order to somehow allow the North Korean regime to continue to exist. So, yeah, this is definitely an important role. So if that's the case, then the obvious question is, uh, what good are sanctions if uh, China and Russia cannot be convinced to consistently and strictly apply them? Well, but then we have to understand that uh, they, are not, uh, they are not violating the sanctions by helping North Korea actively. We are not talking about a Cold War kind of a scenario in which China and Russia are on the other side of the divide and helping North Korea actively and on a massive scale. We're talking about, you know, just a passive assistance by turning a blind eye to, you know, this kind of illicit activities taking place along the border. And uh, so I don't think that, I mean, it looks like uh, given uh, how the North Korean economy grew in the last decade, uh, this kind of small scale or medium scale activities are not going to allow North Korea to survive forever or indefinitely. So the pressure is there because of the sanctions, just that it's not ultimate uh, measure that the uh, could terminate the North Korean regime's uh, 
for good. So that's the difference I would say between uh, what we like to see in China and what the China and Russia is doing right now. Uh, you mentioned before that uh, uh, you believe that sanctions are having an impact on North Korean economy, despite the uh, the North Korea's go- uh, government's attempts to pretend that it isn't. Mm. So let's talk a bit more about that. What are the, what have been the major effects of sanctions thus far? Well, I think uh, you know there. Are Consumption level has gone down, I th- even though the price indicators are very stable. So the consumption level has gone down. The, we know that the money going into North Korea has gone down. And we know that the politically, it's affecting their calculation. That's the biggest manifestation, manifestation of the impact of the sanctions right now. We know that the North Korean regime is essentially putting the relief of sanctions at the forefront of their demands uh, vis-a-vis the United States. Uh, this is a clear change since last year. How is it possible that prices of things like rice and oil and even the value of the North Korean won on the, on the, uh, the, the free market, how, how is it those prices have remained stable while sanctions are having an effect? Well, this is the biggest reason why I'm here, I would say. Because <laughs> I think that there's, a, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about the North Korean economy. And that is that the North Korean economy is a very stable economy in the macroeconomic sense because they engage in dollarization mm-hmm. uh, in the, since, the, since the failed currency reform back in 2009 and it's been almost 10 years and the, the term dollarization comes from the experience of the Latin, Amer- Latin American economies that substituted their under their undervalued uh, local currencies with US dollar uh, because uh, that's the you know US dollar happened to be the most stable carrier of you know financial values at the uh, storage of financial values at the, uh, in those countries so North Korea did the same thing. North Korean people have essentially given up on their own currencies and they started using uh, Chinese yuan and uh, the euros. Uh, we know that the, even the North Korean government have uh, tacitly accepted the fact that the North Korean economy dollarized because when the North Korean uh, regime starts selling their, their cell phones to the public, they charged in euros, not in the North Korean currencies. Mm. And then from the survey of the North Korean defectors in South Korea, uh, we know that uh, you know the incidence of usage of foreign currency in the North Korean people's daily lives is around 50%, which is a pretty high, I would say. When you know dollarization is firmly in, the, in place, what happens is that the price level that you observe in North Korea is not the price level in North Korea. It's actually the price level of, a, the, of the Chinese economy because China is the, the biggest trading partner from North Korea. And that's where the, the, all the essential items are coming from right now. So the gasoline is a case in point. And I also suspect that rice uh, has a major, uh, it's a major import item uh, by the North Korean regime right now. The research out there that shows that the price level of uh, rice in North Korea moves in tandem with the price le- level of rice in China. Mm. So it's an indication that uh, you know North Korean economy, at least when it comes to the price level, is in sync with the Chinese economy. And because the Chinese economy is very stable macroeconomically, so is the North Korean economy. Does that also explain why the the exchange rate of one to euro and, and one to renminbi is, is relatively stable? Exactly, because uh, dollarization means that your uh, your currency exchange rate is fixed. Uh, the biggest, uh, anal- I mean, the best analogy of this is the is the euro, and how in the euro crisis in two thousand nine, and how the uh, you know the economy of the Eastern Europe uh, suffer from mm-hmm. the European financial crisis. But if you look at the price level, price level in those countries remains stable. Uh, what happened is that uh, uh, the people in the in, uh, you know. The Central Europe and Eastern Europe and Greece, for instance, uh, they saw that uh, you know their wages went down between twenty to thirty percent, 
But then the price level remains stable because, you know, the price level was denominated in euros. Are we seeing a similar uh, drop in wages in North Korea? Well, we don't know because uh, North Korea is, uh, you know, so we know it's not a very transparent economy. Yeah. But then... Uh, but from interviews with defectors and people yeah, across the so, border. So, what we are, I mean, so for, for, for instance, I could bring up this very interesting anecdote. Uh, I think I was uh, mentioned in, uh, in Im, Im Jingang, which is... Mm. Uh, uh, I think uh, it's a defectors website, uh, actually organization uh, operates that operates from Japan. Right, Ishimaru. Uh, yeah, oh, exactly. You know, like a compilation of uh, uh, defector testimonies of uh, after the uh, uh, the implementation of sanctions. Uh, the defectors mentioned that uh, they could still get things from the market, but they didn't have the money. So this is a, it's a typical example of a. Uh, of an economy that's been dollarized, quote unquote, it's a typical example of a, you know where uh, the money, uh, the price level is uh, stable, but the real demand, you know, employment level and the uh, income level are going down. What would North Korea's economy look like now if it hadn't been for the sectoral sanctions passed in 2016 and 17? So I think there's this is uh, not a, this is another misunderstanding of the North Korean economy, not as big as the first one about the dollarization. But it's still a big misunderstanding. I think uh, there's this perception, you know, widespread perception, and I think uh, President Trump is a victim of this too, that uh, somehow the presence of Chiang Madang or market indicates that North Korea is opening up. That's not the case at all. So North Korean economy is a really strange uh, economic system right now because it's a hybrid system where the, public, uh, the central planning coexists alongside the markets. But then I think uh, what the North Korean regime has done in the last 10 years was basically to co-opt the market to be part of its uh, distribution system of real commodities. But then when it comes to actual planning, it's still up to the government. So the market in North Korea is not leading to a reallocation of a capital and labor. For instance, the market is not leading to you know movement of labor around the country where people are moving from a, a depressed region to a, to a region that's economically active. That's not taking place at all because the government is still informally in control of this kind of stuff. Uh, what's going on, though, is that the, uh, the North Korean regime monopolizes the you know, opportunities to earn foreign currency, such as by selling natural resources to China and elsewhere, also sending like, workers uh, to abroad. And when you know this foreign currency income comes into the country, North Korean government takes charge in distributing that kind of money to different seg- segments of the population. And this distribution of foreign foreign currency manifests themselves Changmada. So in that sense, North Korean economy is not a typical uh, underdeveloped but opening economy. It's not. It's just it's a state-driven economy where the you know Changmada exists because these are very effective tools for the regime to distribute and allocate uh, essential consumption goods. Could you please give us a quick picture of how sanctions on North Korea would ideally work if they were being properly written and implemented? From my point of view, I'm a realist. So uh, what I can say is that uh, I'm pretty okay with how sanctions are being implemented right now. Uh, ideally, sure, like the most important trading partners for North Korea, such as China and Russia, will be shutting down all types of uh, uh, official and unofficial trade in North Korea, which would uh, drive North Korea to starvation clearly by now. But then that's not something that I, I want to see in North Korea either. And then I think uh, you know, compared to what China and Russia did in, in abiding by sanctions, which was nothing. Uh, so uh, this is actually a pretty high level of compliance uh, shown by these two countries. So I'm personally satisfied with this. The ideal scenario 
or you know, sanctions being implemented fully by all member states would be too drastic for North Korea. But then one part, one part that I should still have concerns about is how some dual-use goods might be getting into North Korea still. I mean, such as uh, you know, precision machineries and then uh, high, like you know, high quality metal parts that could be used to uh, for by North Koreans to build long range ballistic missiles. I think, uh, despite all the tests that North Koreans have done, that's something that North Koreans still haven't been able to achieve self sufficiency. So, the control of the dual use goods that will be the crucial matter here, not so much the control of, uh, you know, the ingress of uh, essential commodity items into North Korea that alleviates, alleviates the, the suffering of the North Korean people. How and when should sanctions be lifted or suspended? I think it should be a step-by-step process, definitely. That's the reason why I'm against the idea of a unilateral deal with anything, <laughs> whether it's in denuclearization or in sanctions uh, relaxation. Uh, sanctions should be lifted step-by-step in a way that, uh, you know, helps North Korean people to uh, achieve a higher level of economic standing, uh, standard, uh, but at the same time handicaps the North Korean regime uh, ability to build a ballistic missile capability. So this should go hand in hand. And we can be very strategic about it. Uh, for instance, we could uh, lift up some of the, you know, import quota imposed on the North Koreans' ability to import gasoline and diesel oil. Uh, I think that this should be lifted first, but in a limited manner, mm-hmm. uh, as an incentive for North Koreans to uh, allow international inspection into their nuclear sites, and also or also come to come up with the list of nuclear assets. And, you know, we can build from there. Uh, by using sanctions in a strategic manner, I think uh, we can uh, somehow incentivize North Koreans to, you know, engage in meaningful denuclearization steps. Let's talk about the long-term future. What do you see as Kim Jong-un's long-term priority and what is his strategy to achieve that? Well, I think a North Korean regime by developing nuclear weapons has shown that he aspires to be a uh, regional power in East Asia. They, I think North Koreans are very aware that uh, they'll never be able to catch up with uh, China and uh, South Korea or Japan and economic sense. So asking them to give up nuclear weapons is futile because uh, North Koreans themselves, they're not convinced that, uh, you know, they can, whether they can do that or even whether that's even meaningful to them. They develop nuclear weapons because they want to have more influence and saying in what's going on in the region. So that's going to be their first step, meaning North Korea would like to be acknowledged as a nuclear state, uh, implicit, I mean, tacit, tacitly being acknowledged as a nuclear state in East Asia because that's going to give them more influence in the regional matters. So, uh, and so that's going to be the first step. And then I think the way to do it, I mean, it doesn't have to be an official kind of recognition. It can be a form of arms control, like a talk that goes on forever because that will give North Korea temporary status as a nuclear state and then that will allow them to somehow create the, you know, space to pressure neighboring countries to keep, uh, lift uh, some of the sanctions measures currently in place, especially South Korea. Uh, so I think uh, this is their first uh, step towards uh, becoming a regional power in East Asia. Mm. Can North Korea open its economy to the outside world to an extent that will allow for rapid growth on the one hand and at the same time keep the Kim dynasty in power? I think North Koreans are really opening up uh, little by little. I think everybody can attest to that. I mean, we see that uh, there's more uh, foreign influence, quote-unquote. I, I would call it uh, external influence seen uh, in Pyongyang, in fashion, in how people are consuming stuff. But then uh, when it comes to uh, rapid economic growth, uh, the question is whether North Korea even wants that. My sense is that they don't want it because rapid economic development would entail uh, a structural change 
I'm not even talking about threat to the political system that they have now. I'm talking about the structural change to their economy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people should be allowed, North Korean people should be allowed to move freely within the country. And, and some of those people might decide to actually cross the border into China, uh, essentially emigrate out of North Korea into China or South, South Korea. So I don't, under, I don't, I'm not sure whether the North Korean regime or the totalitarian regime would like to see that. So that's the reason why I think uh, why North Korean regime wants to see like uh, some opening because they also want to have access to you know the latest technology and latest uh, consumption items, uh, but they don't want to have, you know deal with the ramification of a structural structural change to their society and their economy. Obviously, there must be a, some kind of trade off between uh, security, uh, regime stability. Uh, and economic development. Where do you see the sweet sweet spot between those three things? We know from North Korea's past behavior where their priorities are. Their priorities clearly with the regime survival, regime stability, political stability will be the top priority. But then they would compromise a little bit of that political stability to uh, get some sort of uh, economic assistance. So there lies... uh, uh, the you know the opening I would say for the international community to somehow incentivize North Korea to engage in paths of uh, limited democratization for now and also some economic opening. So that's something that we should take advantage of. Now, when we talk about economic opening, one of the things that we generally think about is foreign investment. And uh, North Korea, you know, several years ago they announced, gosh, I can never remember the number, twenty four. I'm going to say 24 uh, free economic zones. Yeah. Uh, I'll count in now 19, but if you say 24, well, let's, let <laughs> me, I'm that. happy to go with 19. <laughs> yeah. The point is that there's lots of them, and, uh, and North Korea constantly talks about how it wants foreign investment, how it's revised hmm. foreign investment rules. Is there scope for change in the level of openness towards foreign investment? And really, how far can they go with that? For instance, you know, you mentioned greater freedom of movement, but for, for the North Korean people, but what about just greater freedom of movement for foreign investors and transparency? in the process and, and arbitration and mediation other forms of dispute resolution. So that's the biggest challenge for the North Korean regime, I would say. I mean, the biggest constraint that the North Korean regime is facing right now in opening up the, the economy to foreign investors is not external, it's actually internal. Uh, the fact of the matter is that North Korean regime has always put the priority in political stability and that means they want to preserve the natural regime or the totalitarian regime. So if it's a totalitarian regime, then they cannot allow foreign investors to uh, operate freely within the country because if you start giving foreign investors, say, like uh, investment protection and, you know, the ability to repatriate profit at will, then essentially you are giving up part of your economic policy here. And if you give up part of your economic policy, then you're just going to create these small bubbles within this total regime where the this, you know, no, omnipotent power of the state is not really reach, reaching. So, so I think uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, a source of concern for the regime, especially not so much for the foreign investors, mm-hmm. obviously. And I think I think that's the reason why uh, the present leader's father, you know, the pre- previous North Korean leader, leader Kim Jong Il, decided to shut down or like you know, uh, essentially not to operate uh, Lasan uh, Special Economic Zone to full capacity because he understood that uh, if we if we were to do that, then the foreign investors in Nasan uh, would actually create a space within North Korea where North Korean people will be ha- will be having uh, access to freedom, I would say, freedom of choice, freedom to like make money, and then and probably he was afraid that that, that kind of scenario could lead to uh, some sort of a cascading effect 
and the rest of the Noscom society uh, is thereby uh, essentially uh, making, you know, the Noscom regime really unstable in the long run. But didn't he also try to create a Shinichu free trade zone in the early mm. 2000s yeah. run, run by a Chinese businessman? So why would he think about doing that or even make a plan to do that uh, if, on the other hand, you say that he wasn't interested in running Kes- uh, Rason to, yeah. to full capacity because of fears of what it might do? So, you know, I think uh, that's why I have to, we have to understand uh, North Korean motivation from the internal point of view. They definitely face this constraint where they need foreign investment because they need foreign currency. Mm. But at the same time, they don't want the foreign investment to endanger the regime. So the compromise for the regime will be an investment scheme where the investment will be guaranteed by a friendly state, such as China or South Korea or Japan, for that matter. So the fate of those investments will depend not on the you know the actual wants and needs or objectives of the individual foreign investors, by the but by the foreign state that sponsors those investment schemes. Mm. So if you see the commonality across uh, the the you know free trade areas that popped up after lesson, you know these are actually were done in close uh, cooperation with uh, you know another for another state. Shinichu, for instance, was being planned in a, you know and with the, you know taking into account the. Uh, Influence and assistance by Chinese government and Kesson industrial complex is a very, very, uh, very example of this, where the investment is being guaranteed uh, at least indirectly by the South Korean government. I think that these are the schemes that the North Korean state prefers because uh, that way they can somehow employ uh, diplomatic uh, means and also strategic means to, to influence the decision-making process of a foreign state. Let's say, hypothetically, that uh, North Korea makes a deal or a series of deals with uh, the United States and the international community and, and uh, we see some progress towards denuclearization, we see some sanctions lifted. Mm. Um, under what circumstances could you see uh, North Korea receiving international loans for things like capital improvements or other projects, and and who would lend that money to North Korea? Well, I think North Korea would like to definitely you know, see an improvement in relations with Washington because presently, as a state sponsor of terrorism, they are unable to get you know U.S. approval when it comes to you know IMF and the World Bank loans. So clearly, they need like improvement in relations with Washington. But if uh, North Korea they overcome that constraint, then uh, I think they will be asking you know, Washington for. You know, they are approval in assisting North Korea with multilateral financial loans. That's the first step. But then... Uh, but where would the money actually come from? Oh, well, the money, you know, like I think of the first as World Bank uh-huh. as a, you know, big program in assisting countries in, uh, you know, like I would say, in precarious uh, geopolitical situation mm. to somehow get loans and, and develop the economy. So, you know, case in point would be Pakistan in this case. So there are many loans like this out there. Not in, they, are, they are not in large in amount, but still they are there. So I think North Korea will be happy to have access to those kind of loans. But then, as you said, the meaty part of it is going to be much, much, much larger in amount. And that can only come from new schemes of financial, multilateral financial assistance. In this case, I'm talking about AIAB. And right, that's the, the China-based uh, Asia Infrastructure Development in, in, Infrastructure Investment Bank. Investment yeah. Bank, yeah. Yeah, so uh, AIAB, you know, yeah, it's be, has been set up in conjunction with the Chinese per, you know, ambition of, uh, you know, developing like a one belt, one road or belt and road initiative. Yep. So, and we know that uh, North Korea has been invited to join uh, BRI, you know, belt and road initiative. And and also we know that uh, the social uh, academy of social sciences in Liaoning province, which handles the Korean peninsula issues, has issued a report last year about the uh, 
uh, you know, making North Korea part of BRI. Mm. So, and you know, the fact that the battle is that North Korea was invited by Beijing to participate in the, uh, you know, BRI conference uh, last uh, this year too, I believe. So, this all point towards the direction which China is going to make North Korea an important part of their BRI scheme. A BRI, of course, standing for Belt and Road Initiative. That's right. Would we say under if if North Korea were to be brought into the fold of the BRI, could we, yeah, is it almost like, surely you would be feeding the fears of some nationalist Koreans that North Korea is becoming yet another vassal state of China like it was back mm-hmm. in the that's right. 13, 14, 15, 1600s. So, yeah, sure, that's going to happen. And I think North Korea will only have too happy to create that kind of perception among South Koreans because <laughs> that way they can somehow make South Korea and China compete for North Korea's preference. Ah, like it did with the Soviet Union and China back in the Cold War. Exactly. All right. Now, we need to turn our attention to the current arguments between South Korea and Japan. Uh, For our listeners, this was all sparked by a recent South Korean court ruling that found that Japanese companies needed to pay Korea compensation for wartime forced laborers. Japan recently removed Korea from its white list of approved trading partners and Korea reciprocated likewise. After making a nationalistic statement on Friday that Korea will not lose to Japan again, sure to inflame passions, President Moon followed up on Monday by saying, Quote, Japan can never block the leap our economy has taken. If a peace economy is achieved based on economic cooperation between North and South Korea, we will be able to catch up with Japan's dominant position, unquote. What do you make of this? Well, that's uh, clearly a, a pipe dream. Is it, is it on just wishful thinking? It's definitely a wishful thinking. Uh-huh. We have to look at the, the economic size of North Korea. Uh, we're talking about an economy of about $20 billion or $30 billion. But what about all those hidden minerals? What was that number that they introduced? Who, who was it? Many years ago, somebody uh, from one of the consulting firms came out with a number oh, yeah, of no. how many trillions of dollars of minerals and, and mineral, uh, rare earths are hiding in the, the soil of North Korea. Yeah, I think that was the biggest joke. That, that really time I hear about that, it makes me laugh because you know, there's a reason why we call the mining industry a capital-intensive industry. It's because, you know, it takes a lot of capital to dig into those mineral ores. And I think if, you know, even from South Korea, we already know South Korea is devoid of this kind of natural resources. But then if we dig it deep enough into the center of the earth, I'm sure we can dig up <laughs> something. Just that whether it's going to be cost-effective is a different question. You know, I'm sure that North Korea has million, a trillion dollars worth of mineral ores and precise, uh, preci- precious metals mm. uh, underground. But then the question is whether that's uh, how cost-effective that would be. Uh, so I doubt it's going to be very cost-effective because have, had that been the case, then I think the uh, United States would be there first before South Korea. So or- President Moon is, is simply being very, very wishful in his idea of a, a North-South peace economy. No, I think that when he mentioned this in the context of our confrontation with Japan, yes. it showed that the President Moon is definitely ill-advised about, uh, you know, about the prospect of a North Korean economic development. Would Kim Jong-un be heartened by nationalist statements like the ones that President Moon's been making lately? I think his reaction will be very similar to mine. He'll be laughing because uh, one thing that I give credit to Kim Jong-un is that he's a realist. He has shown that, uh, unlike his father, I would say, uh, he doesn't, he's actually a North Korean patriot. He only mm. cares about uh, the development and the well-being of the DPRK, not the Korean nation. And I think in that sense, it's very really similar to the Korean millennials. It's about, you know, the welfare of the, the country they, uh, they are entire part of. Korean nation is a very abstract concept for many young people. And given Kim Jong-un's age, I think it's the same for him. 
So you're saying that in both North and South Korea, there's a, the love for that particular republic is stronger than the love for the grand Korean minjok. No, because, you know, I mean, what's the great uh, Korean minjok concept to young people today? That's a big question. I think, uh, you know, take the uh, page of uh, like, uh, South Korean young, young people. I mean, I think uh, they feel more uh, affinity with, uh, you know, uh, young people elsewhere than in, uh, young people in North Korea right now. Except maybe for those in Japan. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I think even young people today, I think they have a, they express strong preference for the uh, the Japanese culture and Japanese like, uh, people because they visited Japan, they like what they saw there. And then you see that from the you know, polling results. I mean, it has an agenda divide here though. Mm. Uh, but then the strongest uh, veto block right now in the Korean public is a young man in uh, their 20s. So when, when Kim Jong-un and when the North Korean state uh, talks about uh, you know, the uh, unification of the Minjok and uh, you know the, the Korean people and uh, the, the, how the nation shouldn't be divided. Who are they appealing to? What's the point if if they're happy? You know, with, with so the- those Korean people are very actually sorry. North Korean people, I take that back. Those Korean regime is a great marketing machine, marketing machine because uh, they are customizing their rhetoric uh, depending on who the audience is. I'm sure. So who's know, the audience for that the, kind of? In rhetoric? this case, would be like the you know Korean, South Korean. Uh, adults, in the, uh, very, you know, there are young adults, but then we're talking about South Korean population in, 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 the, uh, in the age group between 40 and 50 mm-hmm. and 60 and old. This, uh, you know, these people, they have a very strong, uh, you know, romantic conception around Korean nationalism. And that, you know, what North Koreans are saying is really appealing to them. But if, uh, if you look at the you know, North Korean pronouncements, uh, for the Chinese, you know, they keep emphasizing about their special party to party relations mm-hmm. and their joint struggle against the imperialism, be that American or like a Japanese. So, you know, the, the, the North Koreans are using different rhetoric depending on what who the audience is. Do you think that uh, Kim Jong-un will be using the latest friction between South Korea and Japan as an opportunity to sow discord and division between the uh, uh, the allies of uh, United States, oh, Japan? That, that definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because he, if he didn't do that, it would be a major, uh, you know, four pound part of him. So would, uh, would sending a missile over Japan be an example of that? Oh, yeah, he would like to, but then, you know, right now, for, uh, launching a, uh, you know, like a judicial missile in, in that scale would uh, clearly uh, cross the red line uh, uh, imposed by the Trump administration, so it's not going to do it for now. Uh, one final question for you, because we, we've almost reached the one-hour mark, can you oh, believe sorry. it? Yeah. One final question. You work for the Asan Institute, which was founded, mm. if I understand correctly, using an endowment from Hyundai founder Jong Ji-yong, is that yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. And Hyundai Asan, uh, one of the spin-off companies of Hyundai, once had a monopoly on Kumgang-san tourism, but those tours have been on hold since mm. the, uh, the shooting death of a South Korean tourist in 2008. Uh, some organizations Organizations like the International Crisis Group, whose career expert Chris Green we had on the podcast a few mm. months ago, they advocate a small deal between the U.S. and North Korea under which the Kaesong Industrial Park would be allowed to reopen in exchange for the shuttering of all or part of the Yongbyon nuclear complex. Other people would like to see Kumgang Tours recommence earlier before the reopening of Kaesong Industrial Park. What would you like to see? When should Kumgang reopen? I think um, Kumgang should be the last one to be open. Why? I think... I think uh, Kangang didn't really serve the, the original purpose uh, set out by the Korean government at the time, the normal administration, of opening up North Korea. Uh, if you look into 
the characteristics of the Kaesong industrial complex, uh, it didn't serve as an opening for the North Korean private sector to uh, to be generated and then to, uh, to prosper from it. If you look at how North Korean uh, regime used the Kaesong industrial complex, uh, North Korean regime used the Kaesong industrial complex as a pure source of a wage income. Yeah, cash cow. Cash cow. But then if you compare the experience of other uh, free trade areas, uh, beyond the Korean Peninsula, uh, let's not, you don't have to go that far, but then if you just look at Shenzhen, they use Shenzhen as a way to, for the, North, uh, the Chinese economy to acquire technology, mm. know-how, especially you know, in conducting business in an undercapitalistic system right. and expose the, North Korean, uh, the Chinese economy to the you know, international trade system. North Korea is not doing any of that in the case of industrial complex. So the fact, fact of the matter is that the net impact of the case of industrial complex is same as like a, a for North Korea to send a busload of North Korean workers to Paju, mm-hmm. the the you know, South Korean uh, town just across the DMZ, yeah. and make them work in factories there during the day and bring them back at night. It's a commuter. Uh, industrial complex right has nothing to do uh, with developing North Korean economy. That's the reason why I'm very unhappy about the start. I mean, the about Kaesong industrial complex and and then unless if uh, I mean the only condition for me, I mean personally that uh, you know may uh, allow me to agree with reopening Kaesong industrial complex for North Korea to allow North Korean Jiangmaidang to be developed alongside the KIC. So let me just clarify that. So you would like to see Kaesong Industrial Complex reopened last? I mean, I was exaggerating there. You know, that's how disappointed I am right. with the KIC. So Kum Gang first. I mean, because, you know, it has less impact, uh, you know, in the, in the I mean, this potential mm-hmm. uh, for the North Korean regime to take advantage of it in an in a illicit way. Okay, that, that is clear. Uh, I want to thank you, but do you have any last thoughts to leave us with today? Well, actually, you know, I'm, I think I said like enough. <laughs> Yeah. Well, then I want to thank you once again for joining me today, Dr. Go Myung-hyun. Oh, my pleasure. Are you a Twitter? Yeah. Can people fi- How can people find you on Twitter? Well, actually, I'm pretty inactive on my Twitter, but I try to restart it with this. Okay. So uh, what's your uh, your handle or ID? Go Scooby. So uh, one word, G-O-S-K-O-O-B-Y. B as in boy. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's marathon episode on North Korea's economy and sanctions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and consider buying a subscription to nknews.org where you will find the latest and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea. You can save $50 on your first year's subscription by using the code podcast, one word, at the checkout. Our thanks, as always, go to James Fretwell and Chatter Carroll for facilitating the podcast and to Arius Dare, our longstanding podcaster, uh, post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily noises, etc. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>